Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Mom. It's me. I apologize for calling you this late at night, but they're, uh, they're trying to refuse to give me my allergy medicine, and I'm not understanding. Can you please call me back? Thanks. Love you. Hi, it's me. I'm calling because... You're hearing the voice of Bridget Cavadaw of Dearborn Heights. I don't like it here. I'm not happy here. These are voicemails she left for her mom, Lois Mulkey, a few years back. <laughs> Lois provided them when I caught up with her in August. Hi, Carrie. Hello. How are you doing, Lois? I told you no bark. I'm a new person. (laughs) That's her dog, Missy, who wasn't quite expecting me, but we all settled down as we headed into the kitchen of Lois's Southgate home. Well, thank you for taking the time. Oh, are you kidding? I mean, if you only knew what a struggle it was to to try and get Bridgie's story out Mm -hmm. here and trying to get some help and attention and and all of that. Um, Bridget's handmade ceramics and jewelry were spread out on the kitchen table. And propped against the wall were a handful of big cork boards covered in photos. Okay, so this is like from from birth. And I didn't really take a lot of pictures of Bridget at birth. Bridget has been her mom's whole purpose in life, Lois said. She was born with a form of dwarfism and some other health concerns. She had undeveloped organs and and all kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, at that time, they they were like, uh, she's going to require 24-hour care. We don't believe she'll ever walk or talk. And, you know, I just said, no, no. So I took her on and and brought her home and, and, you know, I'm like, and protected her and got her through everything. But Bridget would have to navigate Michigan's community mental health system with her mom on the sidelines. See, Bridget's health problems continued as she grew up. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and diabetes and lost her sight by the age of four. Fast forward to 2019, and her health and behavioral concerns collided in such a way that doctors said she couldn't live with her mom anymore. So she was appointed a guardian and sent to live in an unlicensed group home in Canton. According to her mom, that's where she called from to leave those voicemails. She wasn't interested in eating or drinking, and she didn't really feel supported. Nobody listens to her. You know, all they'd rather do is be on their phones than, you know, interacting with her. And so she fell into such a state of neglect. Her doctor would say the group home waited too long to bring Bridget to the hospital. And then Bridget died in June of 2020 at the age of 37. It was just over a year after she'd set foot in that group home. And it was after three complaints had been filed on her behalf. The complaints argued a unique set of rights given to folks like Bridget had been violated. Now, an expansive report led by Free Press investigative reporter Jennifer Dixon has uncovered major flaws within the recipient rights system. I'm I'm sorry to hear that that you haven't had the time to grieve your own daughter. There's no time for that. There's no time for tears. Like, I have to be eloquent with my words and my actions and my deeds. That's my final duty as her mother. I'm Carrie Jr. II, 
And on this episode, Michigan community mental health care recipients are on the line. Hi, I'm Jennifer Dixon. I'm an investigative reporter at the Free Press. I've been at the paper about 25 years, and I've been doing investigative reporting almost 20 years. So we're thankful to have you here to tell us about this story. You've been working on this investigation for some time here at the Free Press. Can you just briefly tell me what this investigation is about? This investigation is into a system called recipient rights that gives people who are in the community mental health system or psychiatric hospitals around Michigan, it gives them um, their own set of rights. They have the right to be treated with dignity and respect, the right to be treated without um, abuse or neglect, the right to be free of retaliation and harassment. It's a system that's been in place for almost 50 years, but there's a key problem with this system, and that is that the hospitals and the community mental health agencies have to investigate allegations of violations against themselves. So if something happens in these facilities, the facilities and the people who run the facilities are the ones who look into it to determine whether or not something wrong happened. Either the community mental health agency investigates. If the raw allegation is against themselves, their rights investigator investigates the agency itself or they investigate the providers that they hire to provide these various services to the recipient. I see. And what's gone into this investigation? How long have you been working on it? I spent about a year on this investigation. I started out getting some data from the state that that they gave me um, from each of the 46 community mental health agencies. And then from there, I did Freedom of Information Act requests. I wanted copies of their summaries of their investigations into uh, cases of abuse and neglect. I must have interviewed at least 70 recipients, advocates, experts, people within the state, former community mental health directors. We've looked at thousands of pages of documents, including lawsuits, uh, licensing reports. Okay. And so what, what did you find overall, like in terms of this investigation after looking through these documents, what were the key findings? Well, they investigate themselves. According to the advocates, they don't find a lot of problems. And when they do find a problem, the recommendation for discipline is very vague, like we need firm and fair discipline. Ultimately, though, it's the provider or the agency, whoever committed the violation, they ultimately decide who gets punished and how much. They're also supposed to state how they'll prevent another tragedy from happening again. But in a lot of cases that we looked at, there was no recommendation on how what we'll do to avoid another bad incident. Hmm. And that's how the system is supposed to work. And the problem, too, is that we have examples in our story where the investigators found problems within their own agency. There was an investigator up in Traverse City who found that the recipients of that um, community mental health agency were being abused on public buses. And they should, the agency's own rules said that they should be supervised, but they weren't being supervised. And so all these people were being beaten and they were being harmed in different ways, self-harm. And this recipient rights investigator you know, investigated and said these people should have been supervised on the buses. And he claims his concerns fell on deaf ears. He was harassed and retaliated against. He was fired. And for doing his job, and the same thing happened 
in Nuego County, a um, recipient of Nuego County Mental Health Services, she killed her three young daughters and then committed suicide. And the recipient rights investigator was approached by one of her coworkers who said, I think that this woman's death, she might not have been receiving appropriate services from this agency that she was supposed to be being helped by. And so the recipient rights investigator said, well, I'll open an investigation on this late mother's behalf to see if she was receiving the appropriate services. And when she said that, she was fired. The the recipient rights investigator was fired. Yes. So in some cases, when investigators are reporting these incidents, they're met with consequences. Yes. So there's retaliation in the system against, we've documented two cases where the state came in and investigated and confirmed that yes, in both cases, they should not have been fired for their recipient rights activities. Wow. After the break, we reveal what came of the staff responsible for Bridget Kavanaugh's care and hear what healthcare officials have to say in response to Jennifer's investigation. We're back talking with Free Press reporter Jennifer Dixon about her investigation into Michigan's recipient rights. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. System. Can we talk about Bridget's story a little bit and how this plays into this same situation, this issue of neglect? Can you tell me a little bit about who she is? Yeah, she was a 37-year-old woman. With She was blind. She was hard of hearing. She had diabetes. She had a lot of other health issues. And um, she had had surgery. And after the surgery, her relationship with her mother deteriorated. She was given a guardian, and she was assigned to a group home in Canton. And according to her doctor, she was not really able to discern when she needed medical help and attention. And her routines were really disrupted when COVID came because she was she really liked going to this day program called All About You and she couldn't get out to her day program and she couldn't go and see her doctors in person and at some point she stopped really eating and she her, her health really deteriorated and she ended up in the hospital. They took her to Beaumont in Canton and then she ended up at U of M and then they sent her home after several weeks, and she went home, and she passed away in June of 2020. And I know there was an investigation, at least by community health leaders, on that. What was the outcome? There were multiple people and agencies involved in her care, and the only person who was singled out for discipline was the group home manager. And the, um, Detroit Wayne did confirm that she had been neglected and that neglect did cause or contribute to her death. But the only real punishment was that this group home manager was given a demotion and a five-day suspension. And Lois Mulkey, the mother, doesn't think that was enough to right the wrongs of her daughter's death. They had the option to terminate. 
And, and I think if that would have happened, if she would have been terminated, then my promise to Bridget would have been fulfilled because she wanted to make sure that Danielle was never able to do this to anybody else. Now, according to incident reports, it's possible that Bridget was abusive towards staff. But recipient rights investigators also found that a staff member was disrespectful to Bridget. They also found evidence that the group home manager, Danielle Hooper, neglected Bridget by placing a sign on Bridget's door, ordering staff not to enter her room at a time when her health was declining. I know you ended up speaking to the group home manager, Danielle Hooper. What did she say? Danielle's argument was that she kept everybody informed, like she let the supports coordinator know, she let Detroit Wayne know that she filed incident reports with these different agencies and that she kept everybody abreast to what was going on with Bridget. She felt she was unfairly singled out. You know, in terms of the complaints that we see, how many do we see annually when it comes to recipient rights violations? There are thousands of complaints. Wow. Okay, and how many turn into anything actually result in some type of... I think about 43% are um, substantiated or, or proven. And what have officials said broadly about recipient rights investigations, the fact that you're finding out that some of these cases, they're getting disciplinary action, but it's like minimal, it seems. When Governor Snyder was governor, he had a commission study how to improve mental health services in Michigan. And one of their findings was that recipient rights officers should report to a third party, but nothing ever happened. And there's people that argue that, you know, these community mental health agencies, they cover every corner of the state of Michigan. They have, they're governed by boards. They all have their own board. These board members can include politicians, elected officials, business leaders, medical and other professionals, labor leaders, religious leaders. They have clout. Brian Kelly, the former lieutenant governor, he thinks that they have a lot of influence and they've been able to you know, stop some of these proposed reforms, such as making them independent. And then in terms of advocates, people who support the system, what have they had to say? The advocates say the thing about the system is that these rights investigators are in the system. They know the system. Well, that's what Robert Sheehan says. That's Robert Sheehan, the executive director of the Community Mental Health Association of Michigan, which represents the state's public mental health centers. It can be done quickly and it can be done with the proper response because the prison's embedded within it. So they know they know the system. The person says, I know the program the client was talking about. I know the staff well, so I can intervene sometimes in advance, right? They can sort of see things happening. They can do preventative work because they know it well, or they can quickly do the investigation because staff are quite, quite frank with them. They're quite open because they know that recipient rights investigator. It, it's also why over half the re- complaints come from staff because they know the recipient rights staff. They call them up. The State Department of Health and Human Services says the same thing, that it's good to have people doing this who are local, who are in the system, and the people who know the system. And Elizabeth Hertel, the director of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, argued that the system is somewhat outside of the entities they are investigating. The way that our behavioral health system is structured by law uh, creates that the system of recipient rights at the local level. So as we implement that, we are following the law. And part of that is to ensure that the recipient rights uh, system is outside of, even though it's local, outside of um, the service provision in those areas. So we work really hard um, at the state level with local providers to ensure that that 
separation and integrity of the program is maintained. All right. And so you heard from multiple people who served in the role of recipient rights. What did you learn there? What were some of the takeaways? Well, I talked to some recipient rights investigators, current and former, and they do talk a lot about the pressures that they face, you know, because they work for this agency that they're charged with investigating. And so there's pressure on them to look the other way. There's pressure to downgrade a violation to something less severe. I would certainly hope that nobody is feeling pressure to not honestly illustrate what our recipients are experiencing in the system. We are concerned if if recipient rights investigators are feeling pressure to dumb it down, to weaken the investigation, they should complain about that. That's actually a recipient rights violation by itself. It's pretty rare, I should tell you, the ones I've known about have filed complaints against the CEOs and the CEOs have been sanctioned. I think that we strive to, again, ensure the safety and the integrity of service provision to the recipients of our programs uh, and uh, working with uh, licensed psychiatric hospitals to ensure the integrity and services of their programs as well without the authority and oversight. And we will continue to strive to make sure that the people um, that, that we are working to take care of remain safe. And so then what's next? So you have, we have this investigation that's kind of uncovering some more information about what's going on here. Um, is there anything from politicians or the government specifically that could do something to step in and, and help, you know, make these recipient rights or make that so this process works the way that it should? Right. Le- the legislature could step in and, and do what the Cali uh, commission recommended and take a look at making the recipient rights investigators more independent. That would be one solution. They would redraft that original recipient's rights legislation that they, they made back. Yes, if there's the, you know, political will to do that. And, and how old is the legislation, by the way? Almost 50 years old. I feel like things are going Bridgie's way. You know, that things are starting to, to percolate. And this is a three-year battle. Bridget died, you know, two years ago, but it, it happened. The worst of it happened three years that I've been trying to, I've been jumping up and down and trying to get somebody to hear me. When I was speaking to Lois, she was talking about how she's happy that it's, it's gaining momentum here. Um, I guess I'm just curious whether or not, since you've been doing the reporting, do you see a similar momentum that she's talking about? Well, we'll see when the story runs. Okay. Um, More visibility. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Jennifer Dixon, for sharing this story. It's really important. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate that, too. Okay, so Jennifer's full investigative report is available for you to read right now on Freep.com. If this story was of interest to you, head over there and check it out. This episode was produced by me and Darcy Moran with help from Adrian Roberts. Anjanette Delgado and Marianne Struman are our executive producers, and Peter Batia is our editor. The music for the show is called Fort Trumbull and was produced by DJ Lost Boy. Thanks for listening, and please like, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends and family. And don't forget to come back next week. See you then. 